0: Nuclear energy has become increasingly popular amongst sincere environmentalists in recent years. Yet far left politicians and activists ideologically opposed to nuclear energy stubbornly refuse to even consider it, preferring to offer misinformation and emotional manipulation in the hopes of scoring cheap political points. The tired talking points they offer as settled science are claims that nuclear energy is too expensive takes too long to build, has no solution for massive amounts of nuclear waste, can't work beside intermittent and unreliable energy sources, and isn't safe. I was privileged to be invited to attend a recent event hosted by Generation Liberty and Students for Liberty, featuring Professor John Humphreys, an economist, and Professor Stephen Wilson, a mechanical engineer, to discuss the topic of energy security, nuclear and liberty. I took along a camera and recorded what they had to say and also had the opportunity to interview Professor Stephen Wilson this week at the University of Queensland. In this and the next episode, I'm gonna take you through the information you need to be able to explain why Australia should be embracing a nuclear energy system for the sake of future generations and why the best arguments by anti-nuclear activists are uninformed at best and more likely dishonest demagoguery at worst. Buckle up and let's get into it. This is the Church and State Show, and I'm Dave Pellow.
1: May all that you stand for and that we stand for,
0: be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. trouble caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless
1: ideals as if they were old and outworn machines.
0: But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force.
2: Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. My name is John Humphreys, I'm the uh, Chief Economist with the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, as you've heard before. Uh, before that, I spent a little bit of time pretending to be a lecturer at UQ, not doing as good a job as, as you, I'm sure, but uh, lecturing in economics, uh, a lot on China and a little bit on development. Uh, and before that, I was a vagrant hippie bum travelling around the world for four years. And before that, at Treasury for my sins. I apologise, it wasn't my fault. Um, I guess my other, yes, indeed, I I escaped. My other claim to fame, I think, is uh, some 20-odd years ago, back when I was a young man, I think I was about five years old back then, to to make me 25 today. Uh, About 20 years ago, I uh, founded the Liberal Democrats, a little political party some of you may have heard of. And again, I I guess for some of you, I'm sorry about that as well. But um, that's about it for me. (laughs)
1: Um, I, I accept your apology.
2: <laughs> Says the member.
0: <laughs> no, um, I, I did run as a candidate twice for the for the Liberal Democrats last year, and John, you were a real inspiration um, in, in terms of the way you articulated, um, you know, our policy positions, and and, and even though. Um, you know, the politics is a dirty, difficult game. Um, you know, I was really inspired by, yeah, by our policies and, and by the way you
2: articulated them. Thank you. Did you win?
0: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Next time. Next. Okay, and then to my left we have Stephen Lawson.
1: Thank you, Max. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, Stephen Wilson's my name. Uh, I am these days an adjunct professor at the University of Queensland. I was for about three and a half years a full-time uh, teaching and research professor uh, in the engineering school, in, in the mechanical engineering school at UQ. Uh, taught um, professional practice and I taught energy markets to the master's students. And while I was there, uh, a wonderful UQ alum called Barry Murphy uh, asked me to, he asked me a question. Actually, he tricked me. He took me to lunch. And he sat me down at the regatta and he told me all these student beer drinking stories. And then he said, Stephen, what would be required for nuclear energy plants to be operating in Australia from the 2030s? And I sort of took a deep breath and sat back, and I said, Barry, that's a huge question. In fact, that's more like seven questions. And he said, well, why don't you do the study and answer the questions? Uh, And so we did. not even the pandemic managed to stop us, although it did set us back a little bit. And uh, this this report is the result of that study. Uh, I brought a box along, so there's uh, it's probably not enough for everyone, but if you're really keen to read a hard copy or if you're a bit old school and you like a hard copy, then there's a box here. Um, and if you like a PDF, they're free uh, on the internet. So since, um, since doing this piece of work, actually, Doing this works, I would say, slightly changed my mind uh, about this topic, and it has opened up a whole lot of opportunities, uh, including this one tonight. So uh, thank you, Max, uh, for the invitation, and everyone else, Barclay and everyone else who's been involved. And, and do, do sign up with uh, one or more of these organizations. Um, it, it is really important that that you support things that you believe in. So why would we have nuclear energy in Australia? If we want to have reliable electricity and we want to have a small environmental footprint, including very small emissions, including CO2 emissions, and if we want that whole package to be affordable, not just for middle class people, but for ordinary families, and, uh, and the basis of a competitive economy, then, and if we understand what a power system actually is, as distinct from a market, which is a different thing, then it just becomes inescapable. You can't tick all those boxes and keep a ban on nuclear energy. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, and that view, that's a view that um, is now. Very, very, very widely held in the United States, as as uh, as I, as myself and a few other people who travelled with Ted O'Brien to the US recently found, centre left, centre right, they all agree on this, and and I said, oh wow, how did that happen? We told them a bit about Australia. They said, it sounds like you're where we were about ten years ago. Thank you. Uh, and then and then I said, how, so how did that happen? And they looked at me like I was slightly stupid and said, do the math. So that's the, the short answer to your question, Max. Is you know, we, if, if we do the math, we, we just can't avoid the conclusion we need nuclear energy.
0: Obviously, you've changed your mind, and, and that mm-hmm. would be as a, a process of different and additional information uh, yeah. that you've collected over time, which is really the purpose of why I want to talk to you um, is to make that information available to more people. Yeah. So, listening to the opponents to nuclear energy. Um, I I think to go straight to the centre of the argument, the main thing we're all hearing over and over again is that nuclear should remain illegal and be off the table as a topic because it's preposterously expensive.
1: Yeah, so that's right. You're right that that is um, one of the first arguments that is raised against nuclear energy. Uh, It's too expensive and it takes too long those two things are related to one another so i would say um that 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 is not a correct conclusion to say that nuclear energy is too expensive full stop but i think before we come to that we should say that to make the argument that you should ban something because it's too expensive is a is a crazy argument i mean if if we banned things because they were too expensive we'd be we might be banning Tesla's for example is
0: that the reason because John Howard was the Prime Minister Mm. who who led the federal bans on on nuclear
1: energy was that his reason my understanding of it is that um, the the government was putting certain uh, pieces of legislation through the Parliament one of those was a piece of legislation to uh, replace the research reactor at Lucas Heights so that the um, previous reactor, the hi reactor, was coming to the end of its life, needed to be replaced. There was legislation needed um, to provide for a new reactor. Uh, and at the same time, there was other legislation going through. So the EPBC Act to streamline major project approvals. Uh, and I think also the, the goods and services tax, the GST, right. was being passed through at the same time.
0: So what was the and, motivation of the people who did lead the argument for the ban?
1: Well, the people who led the argument for the ban were opposed to nuclear energy in general. And my understanding is that a condition of agreeing to provide for a new research reactor was that this ban be inserted on other uses of nuclear energy? Uh, so, so the the GST, I believe, was in the frame in the political horse trading, um, but most importantly was. Um, the need for the, the new research reactor. Yep. So it, w- it was certainly not the case that John Howard was in support of banning nuclear energy. I think that's clear. Uh, yep. And any suggestion that he was is is, is historically wrong and misleading. OK,
0: well, um, that is an argument the Greens offer up,
1: that it, I, John I, Howard banned it. Yeah, and, and I'm saying that is not correct. Right. And I'm saying that's a historical misrepresentation. And I'm sure if you talk to Mr Howard, he would he would, you know, make that very clear, but the price that had to be paid to get the new research reactor involved this ban. Uh, And then of course subsequently Mr. Howard was working to overturn the ban, he was supporting the Switkowski, uh, he he called the Switkowski Review, which was a a review of nuclear energy in Australia, and and he he was doing other work to remove the ban, but of course it still remains. So there's the ban at federal level, there's the Victorian ban I referred to, there's a ban in New South Wales that was introduced in 1986, which incidentally is the year that the uh, Chernobyl uh, disaster occurred. uh, And there are bans uh, in other state legislation around the country.
0: Let's talk about the costs. I think the average viewer would be most common with the evidence or report by the CSIRO Mm. suggesting that nuclear was the most expensive of all energy systems. Um, Has the CSIRO report been reviewed and and held up to scrutiny and, and is nuclear energy the most expensive?
1: So I don't believe nuclear energy is the most expensive form of energy. I think that's uh, completely wrong. Uh, The CSIRO report has a number of problems and weaknesses. Uh, It has been criticised extensively. There's been a lot of stakeholder feedback uh, on the numbers in that report and on the way that that report is used. That has largely been, that criticism has largely been ignored, unfortunately. and it's a real problem it it needs to be sorted out so that one of the fundamental issues is that you can't look at the cost of power generation technology at the technology level at the fence of the power station in isolation from the whole system you've got to look at the effect on the system as a whole you have to take a system perspective Uh, so the CSIRO report falls a long way short on that front Uh, and then The other thing is that when you look at nuclear energy, uh, what really matters is your ability to deliver projects. Um, And the system, uh, when we look at at the historical experience, we can see that particularly in the West, um, there have been challenges in delivering some nuclear projects on time. And that is largely a result of uh, the effect of the anti-nuclear movement on the way that the nuclear industry has been regulated. So Mm -hmm. one of the one of the tactics and strategies of the anti-nuclear movement is to delay projects, is to make projects run over time and over budget and then they turn around and blame the industry for being late on delivery. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit rich. If you look at the East, the non-Western countries, you'll see a very different record of delivering projects on time and on budget and you see a much more practical approach To regulation.
0: Is there another report that we can look to or investigation on on the costs of nuclear that that uh, is widely
1: regarded as more credible and holds up to scrutiny? Yeah there is there are other sources internationally from the OECD Nuclear Energy Agency uh, from the IEA uh, from MIT and from other sources uh, that show a different perspective on costs. Uh, and indeed, the report that the study that I led um, a couple of years ago here at UQ, uh, looking at the, answering the research question what would be required for nuclear energy plants to be operating in Australia from the 2030s, that um, provides a, an estimate of the costs of delivering one example type of uh, nuclear technology, which is a, a, a small modular reactor design and provides a range of estimates from uh, a central estimate, a high estimate and a low estimate uh, of the cost. And the the high cost estimate is um, the kind of cost level that you would expect for the first plant that you deploy and then as the learning process proceeds you would expect the cost to come down. And and basically what we find uh, in with those estimates is that relative to the other uh, generation choices we've got it's in the money
0: can you explain in simple terms what the CSIRO did to load the report in the favor of everything else and make nuclear look so expensive if in fact Mm. it isn't so expensive how should we be looking at the cost analysis is it is it something that can be articulated in a few sentences
1: The basic problem is that they are comparing technologies as if they can be substituted for one another when they can't. So if you calculate, the number that they calculate is the so-called levelized cost of energy. So what is the, you know, the average uh, price that someone would need to pay in theory for electricity from technology A, B, C, D, in order to cover the running costs and recover the capital costs of that generation technology, whether that is uh, a coal plant, a solar farm, a wind farm, a nuclear plant, uh, or what have you. Mm. The problem is that you can't really compare, because the, the, the nature of the output from these different technologies is so different, you can't really compare them, it's not a like for like for comparison and you cannot substitute, you cannot take out a coal plant, for example, and simply substitute in wind and solar plants because the most fundamental requirement of electricity systems, so not generation plants, but whole systems, Mm. is they have to exactly balance the generation and the load. The customer load must be exactly balanced with the generation across the system in real time every second of every day, wow. actually to the sub-second level. Wow. And if you cannot achieve that, that's a technical requirement, a non-negotiable technical requirement. If you cannot achieve that, then you're at risk of collapsing the whole system, in other words the whole system going into a blackout within about 60 seconds. And, and so, that, that's a, when I say that's a non-negotiable technical requirement, it's it's a very stringent technical requirement. So it's not just a question of the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. That meeting that requirement um, requires a whole lot of capabilities collectively of all the generators on the system and taking into account the way that they're all connected with the load through the transmission and distribution systems. And so that's the level at which you need to understand cost because it's the costs of that whole system that ultimately land on your electricity bill my electricity bill of the course. university's electricity bill yeah. you know the industrial factories bill the hospitals bill yeah that's what we're paying and if you just focus in on the generation you're missing the whole picture and you're seeing less than half of the costs wow
2: i think on the issue of whether nuclear power should be allowed in australia you're you're going to get unanimous support i think on this side of the stage, I suspect in the room, uh, so, so I probably don't have to convince anyone of this, but it, it occurs to me, the, it is the the big other alternative to, to unreliable, sorry, uh, renewables I misspoke, um, it, it is the other uh, alternative to renewables with uh, that fixes the emissions quote unquote problem. Uh, So it lends itself to, if you want to solve the problem, this is one way to solve the problem, and then the rebuttal is, but it'll be too expensive. Uh, And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second, but the first thing that comes to mind there is that if if they think it's too expensive, why ban it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, either way, there's no reason to ban it, right? Either it's uh, affordable and a good option we should have on the table, or unaffordable, and it won't be on the table naturally. Yes. So there's no rationale to keep the, the ban. I, I think Australia is often 10 years behind the US in a lot of trends, and sometimes that's exciting and sometimes it's scary. Uh, I'm not an expert on what the energy market looked like in the 90s, so I, I probably won't delve my toe in there and get potentially into an argument that I'll look and get embarrassed in. i got to say, right now, the, uh, there is the word market, that is currently used in our electricity market. Um, much like the Democratic Republic of Korea uh, calls itself democratic. Uh, and uh, it's, this, this happens a lot with people chucking a word in their name. Uh, it doesn't make them what they say they are. I know I can get in trouble these days for saying that calling yourself something doesn't make you what you say you are. But uh, with, with, with North Korea and with the electricity market, it's, it's I tried to do a little primer recently on the amount of regulation going on in the electricity market. Uh, I, I spent a few weeks and couldn't scratch the surface. Uh, I then instead, I just made a list of all of the different regulators and quangos and government bodies and pseudo bodies and macro bodies and micro regulators and that list itself was one of the longest blog posts I'd ever written and I didn't even explain what they were, I just listed them. Yeah. There is, I I, I struggle to believe there's anyone in Australia that fully understands how every element of electricity and energy regulation works in the country. So uh, we we are a long, long way away from having a market system and I suspect that's been true for quite a while. Uh, I think it is worthwhile having the discussion of whether the market system could work. uh, And uh, I'm perhaps a bit more optimistic about whether it could give us a result that's worth considering. However, in the spirit of agreement, uh, I, I do accept that the second thing you said, like whether it is practical. That is a big question. Uh, and we have uh, messed up the system so much to get here, it is not clear exactly how you unscramble the egg quickly. So I, I will grant you that. It, it can be quite messy. I still think the first conversation is worth having. Because unless you know what you think you should be moving towards, how can you start the, the journey? So I still think the first conversation is worth having and I, still think, I, I don't think it's practical with the current political system we have in Australia. Uh, and where we're currently sitting now to click our fingers and jump to a market. But I think it is worthwhile considering that if we could, how would that look? Uh, And would it be worth exploring? And I guess, I don't know, this isn't isn't my space, but I'd I'd be curious to hear what, if in a hypothetical, perhaps unrealistic market system, if that did emerge, what about that would be inadequate for the creation of a nuclear industry in Australia? Why would we need government involvement?
1: The nature of the technology is such that it's very, very difficult for the private sector all by itself without a key role for the government to deploy it. And and so one reason is the lifespan of the assets is so long. You're talking about sort of century-long asset lifespans. They're they're talking openly in the US now about licensing nuclear reactors right off the bat for 100 years. Um, So the, the, the original approach was 40 years plus 20 plus 20. They're now talking about you know, 80, 80 plus 20 or 100, 100 off the bat. These are very long lived assets. Um, but if you put anything through a discounted cash flow analysis, as you would know very well, John, you basically find that anything after about year 20 or 25 doesn't, doesn't have much bearing at all on the valuation of that asset. And so and this is the standard method taught in every business school, used in every corporation, used in Treasury, I'm sure, used all around the world, certainly in the West, um, to value assets is the discounted cash flow method, the net present value calculation. And as soon as you apply that method, what you're basically saying is, I don't care how long the asset life is, I'm going to treat it as if it's only a 20 to 25 year asset life. And so at that point, you're basically making a false comparison. And so on that basis, we never would have built the Snowy Scheme. Uh, We we wouldn't wouldn't build anything of of long life. And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves as a nation, and as taxpayers, is what do we want to leave for our children, and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren? You know, our grandfathers and great-grandfathers left things like the Snowy Scheme for us and other, you know, long-lived assets, which were made on the basis of strategic government decisions for <coughs> national security reasons. Uh, and the question is, is, is that the way we should be thinking about things like our electricity systems?
2: Can I ask for a, a bit more detail then, what exactly would government intervention look like uh, to support nuclear? Because I think, I don't know if this is an olive branch or just getting myself in trouble, I can see one thing about the status quo that would potentially lend itself. To a decent argument for the government and that is the, uh, the the ESG movement has successfully convinced a lot of money lenders not to lend money to the, the best economic investment but only to the one that you can successfully sell to the ESG crowd which makes it hard sometimes for uh, good investments to, to get the loan that they need uh, and if that ESG is a cancer, spoiler, it is, uh, then. You could see how people could potentially make an argument for... I, mean, I, I wouldn't make this argument, but I would be sympathetic to people who did, uh, saying that that could be an argument for the government to get involved in the financing leg of then a privately run nuclear power station. Is that what you mean, or do you have a, a yeah. bigger vision of government involvement? Yeah.
1: yeah, so the financing is the crux. So the financing chapter in this study explains some of the thinking on that. The financing is definitely the, the, at the core of the issue. You're talking about you know large capital assets, um, that, that need uh, need a lot of debt as well as equity in the capital structure to make sense. Um, so that that is the core of it. So I'm not saying the government does everything. I think there's a need for there's roles for government clearly in regulation and safety and all those things. There's roles for government in nuclear. Um, it's a licensed activity. Any power generation station is a licensed activity. Nuclear especially so. Um, but the government needs the private sector as much as the private sector needs the government. So the balance of roles is really important. And if, you, and if you're going to get debt in the capital structure, which you do need, you are going to have to show the bankers long-term off-day contracts. That's abundantly clear. That was abundantly clear in 2017 when we talked to every bank, every large bank in Australia. Uh, and they told us that in the case of any power station, you need like, long-term off date contracts. My personal view is that the big 1,000 megawatt nuclear reactors are too big for Australia for a whole lot of reasons, not, not only due to the challenges of big projects and delivering them on time and on budget, not only due to the physical challenges of you know the, the roads and bridges and getting things to site, but also for electrical reasons. Um, I think it's too big. So the, the big revolution, Max, that we've seen in the last 20 years is, small modular reactors. So it's a a new way of thinking about the engineering. Instead of chasing economies of scale with large unit size, the thinking is let's do lots of small units, small enough that we can build them in a factory under a roof, not out on the site in the rain and the weather, but in controlled conditions. We're building lots and lots of them. Uh, on a on sort of more like aircraft manufacture um, and we just get really, really, really good at building the standard design, transporting the modules to the site, dropping them into place in the plant. And interestingly, the scale of those modules, some of them, is actually similar to that very first reactor. But now they're made in a factory, not made using civil construction on site. So that's a, that's a huge um, revolution, I think. It's, it's It's just on the cusp of being delivered. It's been, it's gone from an idea in a university through development and design and licensing, and and it's just getting ready to be delivered. And I think that's what we're gonna, this is a huge opportunity for Australia, is to basically piggyback on 20 years of work and $1.4 billion of development at NewScale in the US, the work that's gone on at G, Hitachi and other vendors, there's competition, by the way, they're getting real competitive, those guys. That was really clear in the US. They, they couldn't quite stop themselves saying a little negative thing about the competitor. <laughs> so that, that's our opportunity, is, you know, is, is this new technology, small modules. And the other big um, message that, that, that's clear, it's, it's in the report, um, and you'll see it, and, and we heard it in the US, is you put these things on the same site as old coal plants, It's the logical place to put them. You've got the transmission connection. If you're going to do water cooling, you've got the water. You've got a community that understands and has a whole lot of the skills already. Um, And you're just leveraging all that stuff. And it's the common sense thing to do. So one of the arguments
0: I've heard the the critics of nuclear energy say is that it is rigid. It is inflexible. Mm. It doesn't have the capacity to adapt to fill in the highs and lows of renewable generation.
1: Yeah and that uh, there's there's something in that I used to believe that Uh, okay so if you look at what let's call it 20th century nuclear technology what you're talking about is very large unit sizes so each reactor turbine generator set Um, a thousand megawatts or larger, very very large unit sizes, and designed to run basically on a continuous basis 24 hours a day, 365 days a year and then be refuelled roughly every 18 months. Okay, so that's that's what's normally called baseload generation. Mm -hmm. Now And and there's a tendency, some people tend to think, as I used to think, that that's the only way a nuclear power plant can operate. Turns out that's not actually true. There is more flexibility in those old plants um, than most people realise. But what's more important is that the new breed of designs that are coming through now, the 21st century nuclear designs, particularly some of the small modular reactors, have been specifically designed to be able to operate on a flexible basis. And so, for example, the, the design that we used as a working example in our UQ study, uh, which is from a company called NewScale in Oregon in the US, in the early stages when the engineers were working on that, they, they um, gathered together their future customers and met with them every six months. And they said, uh, you know, here's who we are, here's what we're, we're developing. Um, what, what are your thoughts? and the customers said things like well we've got old coal plants and we've got wind farms we're not going to be able to replace the old coal plants with new coal plants Mm. but can you deliver us a nuclear plant that can integrate with and work with the wind farms so the engineers went away and designed the plant to be able to do exactly that Mm. and uh, so so these plants can ramp up and and down. They can run uh, all the way down to zero load, all the way up to 100% load. They can operate in um, island mode. So if there's a disturbance on the grid, uh, they can actually operate in isolation from the main system under emergency conditions. Uh, And they can black start. So they can, if if a grid goes into a blackout condition, you can't just start up all the plants again. You need these special units called black start units that can start when there's no energisation Uh, on the system. And they've designed these plants to be able to do that. So these are a completely different class of design than people are thinking of when they're thinking of the old, large 20th century technologies. So the the retort I, I can hear the critics
0: saying right away is, yes, but this is all fantasy. There's not one of these in operation in the world anywhere and there's not likely to be any time soon, so um, Mm. we're not talking about anything real
1: or tangible. We are talking about something very real, Um, you're talking about the development of new technologies, you're talking about at this point uh, in some of these designs they've had 20 years of R&D from concept all the way through to having a license uh, to be able to build the plant Uh, they're in the they're in the final stages of uh, deployment involving contracts uh, and uh, you know preparation of projects ready for construction in the case of the new scale plant they've already started forging the main reactor pressure vessels uh, at Doosan in Korea Um, they are preparing to build the first plant uh, in Idaho in the United States um, GE Hitachi with their design uh, preparing to build in Canada uh, and in the US. We've got TerraPower with the Natrium Reactor, which is supported by uh, Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett. There's also several decades of development behind that design. Uh, the first one of those is going to be built at uh, a town called Kemera in Wyoming, which is in coal country in uh, the western United States. So we are. We are about to see later this decade the deployment of the first small modular reactor designs. Uh, And so, you you know, once upon a time there were no solar farms and wind farms. There came a time when they began to be deployed. We're at the same uh, stage of the, the technology journey.
0: It's not really a very effective argument, is it, against new technology? It doesn't exist yet. Especially for no. an advocate of renewable. Yeah,
1: and, and you, I mean you could say the same thing about a new aircraft design, you know. Yep. So when Airbus developed the A380, uh, that design was so large that airports needed to be modified so that A380s could land and, right. disembark. you know, load and unload passengers. Yep. Um, and so what did the airports do? They negotiated with the airlines that use those airports They invested capital to expand the facility so they could accommodate Airbus A380s. They didn't say the Airbus A380 doesn't exist yet. No no Airbus A380 is flying yet. We're not gonna invest anything in the airports. They they made the investments and got ready, and uh, and here we are today. Yeah. That's where we're gonna end
0: this week's episode, but there's much more to unpack next week. Before we go, allow me to summarize what I've gotten out of this information so far. The CSIRO report on the comparative prices of energy sources, which so many anti-nuclear activists love to quote, falls far short and is not fit for purpose. It does not compare whole energy systems and is therefore as useless as comparing apples and oranges. Nuclear energy is not the most expensive power system, but implemented properly and without activist interference is actually a long-term solution for affordable, reliable, and zero emission energy. The technology is so long lived up to 100 years that there is nearly no company big enough to value it as accurately as a nation's public will. And so it is sensible to have public finance available just as any other nation building project would, which previous generations in fact built for us. The smaller scale technology of this century, which has had the benefit of 20 years and billions of dollars of research and development is currently being delivered and is entirely capable of replacing expiring coal-fired power stations and fitting flexibly into the existing power grid, including with unreliable energy sources. In the next episode of The Church and State Show, you will get even more useful information about the environmental benefits of nuclear energy systems far beyond just the climate, as well as the facts about the nuclear industry safety in history and the present. The panel will be back to discuss how we can advance the conversation about nuclear energy systems to the place of bipartisan support and we'll fact check the three big claims about so-called nuclear waste to wrap up this two-part special i'll finish by asking professor stephen wilson about what australia should do differently to other nations how we can learn from their experience to make sure we have the best nuclear energy system in the world by the end of the next decade. Well, that's all next week, so make sure you don't miss that episode. Thanks to the supporters who donate a monthly amount to keep this big mission in media honesty moving forward. If you'd like to become a supporter or subscribe to the essential weekly updates, please go to davepello.com, where you can also see past episodes and articles by me. Tickets for the next annual Australian Church and State Summit are now on sale. And for a limited time, you can get up to 25% off by booking your seats early. To buy early bird tickets or see where else we'll be having a church and state conference before then, head to churchandstate.com.au. God bless you and Australia, and I'll see you next week.
2: Today